Okay, according to my watch, it's 6.30. Let's go ahead and get started. Okay, would you all pray with me, please? Father, I do want to thank you so much for the opportunity for us to gather. Thank you so much for this family. I pray that your spirit would be working among us, that we would, this class would go well, we would learn something. pray you'll be with me in delivering the material Alan asked me to talk about. I do pray that you'll be with those who couldn't be with us this evening, be with those who are sick and struggling with a variety of problems. We thank you that you are such an awesome and powerful God. Thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, it's great to see everyone here. As you know, I like words. When I saw this up here, I realized I need to work on the aspect ratio of my slides. I made this template a long time ago, and now most projectors prefer the widescreen. So. Wabbit is a word. <laughs> like I'm feeling wabbit today. What does wabbit mean? <laughs> it, it, no, wabbit is tired, exhausted. So I think it's Scottish origin, but wabbit is tired. As you know, I like words. Contraname, words that have multiple meanings, some of opposites. Cacoethes is irresistible urge to do something inadvisable. Hypocaricacy, to take delight in the misfortune of others. Wabbit, I just like it because it's a fun word. And Mount Weasel, I thought I would share with you today because anyone know what a Mount Weasel is? No, it's actually a word came about named after this woman named Virginia Mount Weasel. And she was in an encyclopedia and it talked about her life. It's in the dictionary. You need a better dictionary. <laughs> Oxford English Dictionary. So, there was this article about her, but she never existed. So, a Mount Weasel is something like an Encyclopedia will put an article that they make up. So, if someone does copyright infringement, they know it because they're the ones that came up with Mount Weasel. So, dictionaries do this. They have definitions of words that don't actually exist, which really disturbs me because I really like words and so I'm looking that up. And the question is, when does a Mount Weasel become a real word? If people start using it, then it's not a Mount Weasel anymore. Maps do it, so they'll have cities that aren't really there so that they can test for copyright infringement in case someone copies their map. So that's what a Mount Weasel is. <clears throat> so today we're gonna talk about, we're gonna continue Alan's discussion of our scriptures are Jewish, and in particular, he asked me to talk about different cultures, in particular, Shame, honor, guilt, innocence, and fear, power, cultures, if you're not familiar with those. So, before we do that, what has Alan been talking about so far, or what are some points you remembered from Alan's previous talks the last couple weeks? Anything? Anything that's, okay, it's different, they view the world different, and sometimes, again, it's not saying it's better, it's just recognizing the culture was written can help us give some perhaps deeper understanding. It doesn't mean we have to understand everything about them to have an understanding of scripture, but it can help us have a deeper understanding and avoid misinterpreting scripture. Anything else that you learned or thought was interesting? Wasn't born in a barn by himself, him and Mary with all the animals. There were lots of people around probably. It would have been a shame to the community as well as the family to have a woman give birth in a barn. So that would have gone against the very core value of a community. Yeah. Anything else? Martin Luther hated Jews. I thought that was interesting because I didn't know that when you saw those quotes 
that he wrote about. Okay, so today my goal is to talk about guilt, shame, and fear cultures, give you an introduction to that, talk about how this plays out in the New Testament in something called honor challenges. So the interactions Jesus has with other people are sometimes called honor challenges. And then he also wanted me to talk about virtue, vice, rules, and relationships. Okay, so one of the key concepts, and we've already talked about this, is that the culture was different back then. And just recognizing that, that we all live in a culture. The culture we live in now is not better or worse than the culture back then or other cultures in the world today. They're just different. And so recognizing that is a valuable thing to do. We live in a Western, individualistic, primarily Greek-based culture, most of us. Bible originated as an Eastern collectivist, and we'll talk about, I don't know if I will or he will, individualistic societies versus um, collectivist societies, but Jewish culture was primarily collectivist. And again, the challenge is just to try to be aware of some of these things. So you may be asking the question, well, I wonder if this is a culturally related thing. Okay, so these are the resources he used. The only one I've actually read is Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. This is in here in case you want the notes. They'll be posted on the website, I believe. So if you want to look at some of these resources. Well, I think we want to be careful. There could be people in those cultures that are mean. That doesn't mean the culture itself is advocating what individuals in those cultures do. I mean, there is honor and shame cultures are what the Jewish culture was. So if we say there's honor-shame cultures, now again, that doesn't mean they're, you know, the Taliban. I'm not calling them. They are the honor-shame culture model that we're supposed to look at, okay? But there is an honor-shame culture. Oriental cultures tend to be honor-shame. Jewish culture tends to be honor-shame. And they're different than our guilt-innocence culture. So I'm using very broad brush for those when I say cultures there, okay? Okay, so... Recall three main goals, to appreciate the heritage that we are grafted into, to better understand and apply scripture to our lives, to have a richer understanding of the teachings of Jesus. So he gave this sort of illustration. We can understand scriptures, but we're trying to make it richer, color in between the lines, if you will, by getting a better, deeper understanding of the culture in which the Bible was written. Okay, <clears throat> so... We're going to talk about three different worldview cultures primarily today. And again, we do want to be careful not to stereotype. Like, oh, someone from Japan, this is what they're like. Someone from Iran, they're like this. That's not necessarily true, okay? So we're going to talk about guilt-innocent cultures. We're going to talk about honor-shame cultures. And we'll briefly mention fear-power, which is a much smaller number that are this fear-power culture. So if you look at... I know it's hard to read this, but what this says is blue is guilt, innocence, red is honor, shame, green is fear. So I know you can't read this as far away. What this is trying to show you, the United States is primarily blue, predominantly blue, which is guilt, innocence. Same with Western Europe. But if you go to Africa, you know, you start getting a much larger component of fear. These red ones are honor, shame. So Latin America, Asia, Africa, Islamic is primarily honor-shame, but not exclusively. So again, you can't just put everyone into this bucket. We will, okay? We'll go through the details of what each of these sort of characteristics are. So here's a map, and the color coding is, again, the blue is primarily guilt-innocence. 
<coughs> and the darker the blue, the more prevalent that particular view is. Red is honor, shame, and green is power. So there's a few countries that are predominantly green, but they're really rare. Doesn't mean there aren't pockets within cultures that are primarily fear. But again, United States, primarily guilt, innocence. Asia, Africa, a lot of the bright red ones are Middle East. Those are certainly more honor, shame, and then some in Africa. Okay, so general characteristics. This is what you're asking. What are the general characteristics of each of these? So in terms of guilt, innocence, generally individualistic cultures like ours. We have what's called individualistic culture. Rugged individualisms, American, you know, core value. We're individuals, we want our rights. That's us, okay? So, guilt, innocence, <clears throat> everything measured by right and wrong, and to be a mature person is to know the difference between right and wrong. And when you read things, these all sound perfectly normal and right, and this is the way it should be, okay? But I'll show you the other ones in just a second. So, deciding to act rightly is usually not made with others in mind. We do something right because it's the right thing to do, okay? Things tend to be black or white, good or bad, either or. Very little area for gray, you know? Lying is wrong, lying's always wrong, lying's just wrong, okay? Black and white. We need Jesus to remove guilt and declare us innocent, which is certainly true, but that's the predominant view of what Jesus did on the cross. Rules apply to everyone at all times. Laws determine guilt and innocence. Knowing and exercise individual rights is a primary concern in guilt-innocence cultures. People feel guilty for what they have done or not done. And communication tends to be direct. Confrontation is acceptable. Now, I suspect as we read through this, none of those seem particularly wrong. They're not wrong, okay? This is just generally how we view the world, okay? Well, let's look at, and about 30% of the world is predominantly this guilt-innocent mindset. Okay, let's look at honor-shame. Honor-shame, generally collectivist cultures. So honor-shame, the issue is generally not right and wrong, but what is honorable and dishonorable. That tends to be the way they frame actions. Honorable and dishonorable, which is based on society norms per pressure. So it's not a guilty conscience that causes me to do something or act a particular way. It's the community and the peer pressure and the punishment from the community that causes right behavior. Acquiring honor and avoiding shame, saving face, are the highest values, highest goals. We want to avoid shame and gain honor. Self-expression and fulfillment are less important than the group success and honor. So I may not do something I want to do for the benefit of the group. Whereas, again, that's not a bad thing, right? But in America sometimes, well, I've got my right. I don't have to wear a mask because it's my right and I can do whatever I want and I don't care about anyone else. I'm not saying people have that. Some people do. It's my right, right? Collectivist cultures, that's not, the, you want to look at what's important to the group. Shame comes from failing to fulfill the group's expectations. Individual sacrifice for the good of the team, family, village, or country tends to be a characteristic. If sin is hidden, generally there's no guilty conscience, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later. So guilt only comes from the community knowing about it. It's not this internal sense of right and wrong. Uh, need Jesus to remove shame and restore honor. 
It's a different way, you know, we said Jesus removes our guilt and makes us innocent. In this case, they remove our shames and restores honor. About 60 to 70% of the world is predominant. And that's because you include China and India, and then you got billions of people, okay? Japan as well. So honor and shame in the ancient world. Ancients avoided doing evil, and I'll quote Plato on this one, not because they were concerned with right and wrong, but because others were watching. That was primarily the motivation for doing what's right, because people were watching. And so there was this myth called the Ring of Hyges, I don't know how to pronounce it, Hyges, Hyges, some ring, and it was considered what, the one temptation that no one could resist. The ring made the wearer invisible, and with it on, no one, a man could do whatever he wanted, and others would not know about it. And this is probably where Tolkien got the concept for the Lord of the Rings. The One Ring was probably based on this ancient uh, story, myth. So what Plato said was, the reason no man would keep his hands off what was not his own when he could safely take what he'd like and other people wouldn't know about it. That was the general view. If no one knew about it, people would do it. And so he actually was the first person to argue that we should resist the temptation and it should come from more of an inner motivation rather than external peer pressure, which really has influenced us in the Western world, right? A lot of our thought comes from the Greeks in terms of Plato and Socrates and so on in terms of basic view. And so he was the first one to talk about this. Prior to this, people would have agreed, you know, if I have this invisible ring, I can do whatever I want. There's not like this, well, stealing is wrong. It's more of no one's going to know, which is a very different way of viewing the world, okay? Heisenberg, or not that, Schrodinger. So, now, I did want to say one thing about these slides. If you have any really hard questions, write them down and save them for Alan. <laughs> I mean, I'll try to address them, but I think he's read a lot more on this topic than I have. <laughs> Ask it now, that's fine. Okay, let me give you a modern example of a miscommunication between an honor-shame culture and a guilt-innocence culture. So there was this tsunami. Here's a picture of the devastation in Indonesia. And there's this province in Indonesia called Ike, and it was one of the hardest-hit regions. And they were a very isolationist place, so they didn't let in Westerners or outsiders. They were a very closed place. But because the devastation was so bad, they actually let in aid workers to help them. And then, so it was both so bad, they let in aid workers, but after several months, the government started fretting and getting concerned that the people were going to feel like the government wasn't taking care of them. And as a result, they would experience shame. They were not doing what they were supposed to do, and it was shameful. So they demanded that the foreigners leave. Now, they demanded this, but they didn't want them to leave. They didn't expect them to leave, but they demanded it because it would save their face and everyone would be happy. We demand you to leave, you keep doing whatever you want. We've saved our face because we demanded you left and you're still helping us, everyone's happy. And most Asian cultures would have understood that. In fact, the foreign minister in another speech said, oh, they'll stay as long as we need them, as long as they're helpful and they can help us, we'll, they, they can stay. 
So they're getting these sort of mixed messages and the Americans were offended, these ungrateful people. We come in there, we help them and they're kicking us out. How dare they? And so we demanded an apology. We demanded that they take it back and they be thankful for the help we're giving them. <coughs> and so this is not Taliban, this is Indonesia, not Afghanistan. As far as what? Well, I think it's a little different because, again, in this case, they tell get out, but they actually wanted the Americans to stay. They wanted to help the aid workers to stay, but they needed to save face in the community, so they asked them to leave. And so they needed them to stay, so they, the government actually had to apologize, which means they brought shame upon themselves. Americans were unhappy. They were unhappy. Everyone was unhappy. Whereas if they had just ignored the request, the Indonesians would have been fine with it. Okay, but it's a different culture. They were saving face by asking them to leave, but that was completely misunderstood. Okay. So, characteristics of fear, power cultures. Again, this is much smaller population of the world. So, 10% maybe or less, I'm not sure. Couldn't find good numbers. Generally collectivist. People are fear unseen forces such as evil spirits, curses, ancestors. Um, so the, the, the world is a spirit-filled place. The goal is to appease or manipulate the spirits to act in your favor. So you could think of like medicine men and you think of sort of primitive cultures. This would be more of that fear power culture. But they're still in the world today. Say again? Voodoo religions, that type of thing would be a fear power. So you need Jesus to overcome the fear and endow with power. That's sort of the purpose of what Jesus does. Relatively small percentage of the world. But I think Alan was saying in Africa, when they go to, what do they go, Zambia? There's still this fear of power, like the medicine men and things like that. There's still this in pockets of that. Yeah? I don't know that much about Baal. I, think in the, I tend to think of Baal as just another god of the time, as opposed to there are spirits everywhere. And so, for example, they would not... So some of the movies we have in, our, in the United States are not great in terms of demons and spirits, and we have, you know, exorcists, and we have all these things that, you know, intended to scare us. And they wouldn't watch that because that's real. That is... And maybe they have a little better view of the spiritual world around us, and we sort of take some of that. And I'm hoping none of us watch some of those awful movies, but they certainly wouldn't watch those movies. A lot of the spirits, so animism is something that you, you know, the rocks have the spirits and the trees have spirits, and that would all be, and they tend to be more primitive whatever primitive or old religions, the animism. <clears throat> okay, so the way you view the world does influence your theology. So this is, a, I got from this intervarsity.org. So I know this is small, so let me just point out some things here. So prolegomena basically is just the preliminary discussion. So they had a bunch of tables. So here's sort of the overview slide. And it's saying the existential question for individualistic is how, and from a religious standpoint, is how can my sins be forgiven to be assured of heaven? And this is overgeneralization, but generally. 
collectivist, how can I be part of a community to be respected, animism, so again, the society is generally individualistic, collectivist. I don't think animistic fits in there because it's not quite the same as collectivist. So I'm not sure I like what their first row there, which is why I skipped it. <clears throat> so how can I access the power? And then in terms of Christian theology, individualistic is basically Augustine reform sort of theology. Underdeveloped for collectivists in terms of Christian theology. In terms of animistic, Pentecostal, charismatic, which are taking off in Africa tremendously because, again, there's a lot more of the spirit field concept in Pentecostal, which would be naturally attractive to someone from a more fear-based culture. Uh, primary location, the wet, okay, principal metaphor. Guilt innocence would be a courtroom. Collectivist would be a community. And animistic would be combat. Primary location, the West, East, and South Africa tribal would be fear. <clears throat> and Christian status, historically Christian is individualistic. Collectivist, again, that tends to be China, India. They're generally not Christian. They're growing in that, but that's not their primary religion right now. And Africa would, is growing in Christianity, so more recently Christian. <clears throat> okay, in terms of... Guilt, shame, and fear again. We've already mentioned the metaphor, courtroom, community, combat. God, and I'm not saying this, everyone in a guilt, every American, because we're guilt, we are in a, uh, yeah, we're guilt innocence, thinks of God this way. This is not, you know, we have a much more nuanced, broad perspective of God. But a generalization would be God is the lawgiver and the judge. Community, he's the father and the patron, ruler, creator. Sin is law-breaking. Shame, sin is disloyalty. Fear, it's idolatry. Christ is our sacrifice. Psych Christ is our mediator. Christ is the conqueror. And again, I would say all of those are true for Christ. It's just the one that tends to have the more um, emphasis, I would say, in a particular culture. Salvation is forgiveness, honor, face, peace, freedom, mission, truth, community, power. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about honor-shame cultures in particular, because again, we said the New Testament were basically honor-shame, okay? So honor is either ascribed honor or it is achieved honor. And ascribed honor is basically because of your birth, you know, where you're born into a wealthy family, then you have ascribed honor. It's just from the family you were born into. Or maybe you have lower status because the family you were born into is not well respected. So the family, family name, ethnicity, just being a Samaritan gave you low standing, certainly in the Jewish eyes, okay, based just on ethnicity. Then there was achieved honor. And achieved honor were things like accomplishments. So winning a battle, winning honor contests, doing something good, for, but these were all public things that you needed to be recognized by the community for doing this and you could have ascribed honor. So Joseph's coat was not just a nicer present. The problem with Joseph's coat is that he was being given an undeserved honor by his father. And that's why the brothers were so upset. He was basically being honored of being the first. He was given the honor of being a firstborn when he wasn't a firstborn by giving this coat. So even though it was not, so it explains the motives of the brothers that they, if Joseph's honor went up, their honor all went down. And so that's what made them so angry. 
Jesus had both. He had ascribed honor. When you look at the lineage, it always goes back to David, right? We have this lineage. Of, why, does he, why do all the Gospels, or several of them, present the lineage of Jesus? Well, they're giving him this ascribed honor based on his lineage. And then he also had the achieved honor based on his life and his sacrifice. Okay. <clears throat> so, a couple more comments on honor shame. Shame is not negative. In our culture, if you shame someone, that's bad, right? You don't want to shame anyone. You know, like when I told you to shut up and get the... That was shaming. I shouldn't have done that. I will continue to do that. But it wasn't the right thing to do, okay? <clears throat> so... Shaming is generally a neg in our culture, but in honor-shame culture, shame is not negative. Shame's a, it's good that the community knows the proper way to behave. And we even have a phrase, have you no shame? There's, what's that mean? You know, you know, why aren't you doing what you know is right, right? We're not shaming someone. We're just asking people to have shame, do what's right. Okay, shame is not the opposite of honor. Dishonor is the opposite of honor. The goal of shame is to pull back, pull me back to the center of the norm for the community's benefit. So that's sort of the goal of shame. Honor is to be protected. So Jesus took honor from the Jewish leaders. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about honor contests. And generally, when you had an interaction in public, it was an honor contest. And as a result, and we'll talk about honor contests, there's a winner and there's a loser. And the winner gets more honor, the loser loses honor. And Jesus always won. And you can see the Jewish leaders getting angrier and angrier, right? And so they needed to restore face, because they were shamed. They needed to restore honor, and that's one of the reasons they needed to kill him. So, Jesus took honor away from the Jewish leaders. We'll talk about that later. Guilt is used to make me change my behavior, while shaming is used to change our behavior. Okay? Okay, so let's look at sort of shame language in scripture because it's all over the place when you start looking for it. So here is a psalm. You have sold your people for a trifle. Demand no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the people. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. So how many words of shame are in here? Well, we see one, obviously translated shame, but if you look at all the other words, taunts from my neighbor, derision and scorn around me, byword among the nations, laughing stock among the people, disgrace, these are all words of shame. Here's another one. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. That's a shaming sort of image there. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdom your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And you will flee, shrink, recoil. There's a number of translations there. But again, a lot of these are sort of shame type words. Which again, in that culture would be very, again, maybe we sort of gloss over those because they're not quite as, powerful as it would have been in an honor-shame culture. Okay, here's another example from the New Testament. When he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. 
If so, the host will, who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up and get a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Clearly, honor, shame type image here. Okay, David and Bathsheba. So I'm not going to go through this a lot. But the, the book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, talks about this and the framework of honor and shame. So the prophet Nathan, we know, was a tool God used to convict David of his sin, right? He repented. Now, we assume that David was aware of his sin, but stubbornly was sort of refusing to repent, and then Nathan sort of made him aware of it. Oh, my word, now I'm going to repent, Okay. More likely, and I'm saying this is not, I'm not saying this is 100% the way it was, but this is the way the, the argument the author made, I think it makes a lot of sense, is that more likely he felt no guilt at all about this and had not given it a second thought. <clears throat> he was not doing anything culturally that a king at that time would not do. It was okay for kings to do this sort of thing. Now, clearly he was committing adultery, so from the Jewish perspective, he was clearly breaking one of the Ten Commandments. But from a cultural standpoint, he wasn't doing anything wrong that any other king wouldn't do. He was sort of at the pinnacle of society. Can he do what he wants? He probably didn't feel guilt. So David's adultery with Bathsheba was also not a private matter. Everyone in the palace would have known. He sent servants to go get her, right? So if he sends, and it wasn't just a servant, it was servants. Everyone in the palace knew that Bathsheba was there. Everyone knew what was going on. So there was... The real conflict was this honor conflict between Uriah and David. And so by sending for Uriah, and, and again, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but that passage starts off like this, something like this. You know, it was in the spring when kings go off to war, David sent, what's his name? Joab to go fight battles. And right away, that's painting David in a bad light, right? Why? Because he's the king, and he should have been going off to war, but he wasn't. So it's immediately saying, David's not doing what he was supposed to do. So by sending for Uriah, and also a king wouldn't send for just a regular soldier. That's not something that would happen. So something weird's going on here. And then the subsequent events. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but he said, you know, dine with me, go home and sleep with your wife, and then get some drunk. And but Uriah had nothing to do with, right? He slept outside. And basically everyone could see him there. So he was making the statement, no, I am not going to go home, David. Even if he had gone home and slept with his wife, everything would have been okay. The child would have been his, even though biologically it wasn't. Culturally it would have been his child. would have been fine. But Uriah was saying, no, this is not right, and I'm not going to let you off the hook, basically. So David had Uriah killed. He's still probably not feeling guilty at this point, he's probably thinking, this is all Uriah's fault. If he would just have gone home and slept with his wife, we wouldn't have this problem here. <clears throat> um, and everyone would have saved face. Everything would have been fine. And then Nathan comes and confronts him with the story of the feast and the in sort of a, it would have been shameful in that. And so he's making David aware of his sin in this sort of shame context of this story. And then that's when he suddenly comes to the realization. Not necessarily internal guilt, okay? 
So God uses shame to bring him back to repentance. It's an interesting, if you want to you know, read the book, I would encourage you to do that. Okay, public interactions were generally honor contests. Okay, let me tell you what that means. So an honor contest was a way to gain honor or lose honor. So generally, it's a people of equal status. So a king and a slave can't have an honor contest. So generally, you know, two rabbis together would have an honor contest. Generally equal status. So when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or Sadducees, that would generally be an honor contest because they're equal status. Zero son. So if one gains honor, the other person loses the same amount of honor. There are no ties in these sort of things. And they generally work something like this. There's a challenge. So there's some event maybe. This is how it works with Jesus. Some event. He heals someone. And then there's a challenge, Pharisee, whoever. Then there's a response to the challenge. And then generally the crowd makes some sort of verdict. And I'll give you a couple examples of this. And the verdict was by those standing around. These are always done in public. So Elijah versus the prophets of Baal was an honor contest. So let's look at this example in the New Testament. So, and he was setting out on his journey Oh, this is different. This is a different one. This is a, honor challenges can be positive or negative. And this is one I'm not as comfortable with. So these are Alan's notes right now. So he was saying an honor challenge can be positive or negative. Here's a positive one. And what he said, the positive one is when there's no intention of bringing harm emotionally, culturally to the other person. So here's the example. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. So the kneeling before him sort of shows that it's not, he's not intending it to be a negative honor conflict or contest. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment, mitzvah is the Hebrew word. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've done in my life. You know the rest of the story. Now, so a claim, so I'm going to read some of Alan's notes here for you. So when the reason in entering another social space is to gain a share in that space or gain a cooperation or mutual benefit, then that could be a positive honor contest. So Examples of positive claims, including like words of praise, gifts, sincere requests for help, a promise of help, plus actual help. Though these challenges are positive in the sense that they seek no harm for the other person and that they bring no lethal result to the recipient, these messages are still regarded as challenges in the sense that they put the recipient on the spot and his status or reputation is on the line. So let's look at this example. Let's take a, look, a word of praise as an example. The rich young ruler, or whoever this is, um, approaches Jesus, knelt before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then, why do you call me good? But Jesus, you know, Jesus responds, no one is good except God alone. So his refusal of the praise, because he didn't accept the praise. You're right. You know, I'm good. The, his refusal, the praise, can be seen in terms of the culture of positive challenges. As this commentary tater suggests, the challenge of Jesus rests in the sense that if complimented, Jesus would have in turn be obligated in some way to compliment the other person. You need to reciprocate a compliment if you're complimented.
So, compliment, whether or not it's sincere or not, you're supposed to compliment it back. So, um, and that's in the first century. Thus, there's a need to deflect the praise. And so that's why he's sort of deflecting the praise there. Okay, let's look at negative ones because I think they're more interesting. And there are other examples of positive ones. So, a lot of words here. I'll go ahead and read some of this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat. The man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So that's what happened. Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Then, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, this is the challenge now. Even though they're thinking it, Jesus is aware of it. Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Then it says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that what they, this was what they were thinking in their hearts and said to them, why are you thinking such things? So this is the response to the challenge. Why are you thinking such things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk. And then he heals the man. So he gets up and walks away. And then the audience has the verdict. They, they this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus won. So that's sort of a, sort of a classic framing of an honor contest. I think, here's a, I think I'll give you one other one in just a second. So honor is limited. We've already talked about this. Always a winner and a loser. Each person of slice of the pie is either bigger or smaller at the end of this thing. And we already mentioned Jesus wins all his honor contests. Here's another example. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's the challenge. Woman, you are free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So this is healing of a cripple. And then, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are seven days, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. That is sort of the challenge. Jesus responds to the challenge. You hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you, and so on, it goes to his response here. And then the people, when he said this, all the opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So you can sort of see this pattern happening. And generally, public interactions were this sort of honor challenge. Yeah? I would say so, yeah. Exactly. Okay. How about Nicodemus? We're all familiar with Nicodemus, right? What's the unique thing about Nicodemus? He went at night. And he, why did he go at night? So it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So why... Did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Afraid of his peers is the most common interpretation. And it's probably wrong. 
<laughs> but there are lots of commentators that say that, right? So here's a commentator. Uh, normal commentary might say, as a result, Nicodemus visited Jesus in order to discover more about him, but apparently Nicodemus did not want to be seen by the other Pharisees and or members of the Sanhedrin council. Nicodemus was a busy man, but he could have taken time to visit him during the day, but he didn't want his peers to know what he was doing. That's probably not his, he probably wasn't scared of anyone. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Pharisees. That's a position of high honor. He was probably not scared of any one of the other Pharisees. That was not the concern. It's more likely if he met him in public and asked his, it, could be, it was an honor contest. But when you go in private, then, and I, the, the disciples ask questions in private, generally, right? So by going at night, it's no longer an honor contest, and they can sort of speak freely if they would, because there's not the public around to make a judgment on who wins the honor contest, okay? So this explains why the disciples ask questions in private as well. So this is another way of thinking about it in terms of Nicodemus. May not, he may not have been concerned with the other Jews. Now, maybe he was to some extent, but that tends to be a cultural interpretation. And at night, that typically means private among a smaller group and not among the public. Okay, let's talk a little bit about vice and virtue. Not totally related to honor, shame, but Alan wanted me to talk about this. So, what a culture upholds and shuns is what we mean by virtue and vice. So in Paul's time, there were a list of, this is sort of a more of, I thought, more of an interesting trivia. But in Paul's time, these were generally listed in groups of five, followed by a summary word. And we see this in the letters all the time. For example, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, five things, which amounts to idolatry, which is sort of the summary word. Here's another one. But now you also put them... Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, five things. Then there, uh, from your mouth, do not lie to one, uh, from your mouth, summary, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So these are not intended to rank these things from bad to worse or anything else. This was just a Greek style of writing, these sort of five things in a summary. Here's another example. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Five things. Parenthetical statement. Bearing one another and forgiving each other whatever, whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you so that you also, so you should also, beyond all these things, put on love. So that's sort of the summary statement at the end. Beyond all these things, put on love. Okay. So we tend work on getting rid of vices. And I'm not saying this is always true, but we tend to, I think to our detriment, tend to work on getting rid of vices. I overeat, so I work on not overeating, right? I have a bad temper, so I'm going to work on not having a bad temper. So we work on getting rid of vices and sort of expect virtues to happen. Whereas the Jewish mind, you've worked on attaining virtues and cultivate good habits, and then the vices just sort of go away. And I think some of us have that philosophy as well. And I think it's a better philosophy is to focus on 
replacing that thing with something, reading scriptures, being in prayer. Because when you focus on the negative, you just get sort of wrapped up in the negative, and you, you don't really make any victory. So consider some cultural virtues we impose on scripture which would not have been considered virtues. Not that, what I'm going to list right now, you can argue with Alan. Potentially be controversial, but I think we impose virtues that aren't necessarily exposed, exposed in Scripture as virtues. So examples, self-sufficiency, saving, fighting for freedom, tolerance. Bible really doesn't talk about being tolerant. doesn't talk about being a self-sufficient individual. You're part of a community. Self-sufficiency is not a core value. Saving, what we're talking about that is sort of excessive saving. Because if you save, that means you're taking something away from someone else. So it's sort of being greedy. So the, the story of the guy who built bigger barns, the problem wasn't that he had barns full of, the problem he was greedy, he was not sharing what he had. He was building bigger barns. The problem wasn't that his barns were full. He was just not sharing that. Um, fighting for freedom, no concept. You know, they, they don't argue New Testament about we need to free the slaves, right? We have all these slaves in Rome. We need to rise up again in Rome and free the slaves. I'm not saying slavery is good. It's not. But that's not a virtue in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Okay, let's talk about rules and relationships. Prior to the Enlightenment, presence of God or gods was assumed by everyone, pretty much. Enlightenment gave us scientific understanding of the world. That's what the Enlightenment was. We started having a scientific method. We saw order. We saw structure in nature. We started getting mathematics to describe things. We saw this beautiful world appearing in terms of order and science. So God was, to be less, was believed to be less involved as we found natural laws. So God no longer made the rain come down because we now have an understanding of the water cycle. It just happened by nature. Okay, well, we have Newton's laws. And that's what led to deism, right? Deism is the view, well, God started the clockwork of the world and it's just now running, but he doesn't really have much to do in it anymore. Maybe he pokes his finger in every now and then, but he's not the God of theism, which God sustains and makes everything happen, even though we can describe it with natural law. So, if the created world operates by laws, then certainly scripture also acts by law. As well. So certainly scripture also operates with these laws. So they begin to define how we relate to one another and to God with laws and rules. So, so Easterners and Westerners are different in regard to rules and relationship. The Western world, and I'm characterizing, stereotyping a bit. Basically, guilt, shame, right, wrong, individualistic. So rules define the relationship. If a rule does not always apply, then why is it a rule? Rules need to apply to all people at all times. Eastern view, honor, shame, command, relationships define the rules. So example, Paul could give a solution to one church based on their relationship. Women do not speak. That doesn't necessarily mean he's making a general rule for every church. So it's based on the particular church and relationship that he's talking about. Now, sometimes maybe he is. So the challenge is when is it sort of a more general statement versus a, a situational command, if you will. Um, so we need to be mindful of this when reading scripture. Okay, 
One of the goals of this class and this series of classes is to help you realize other view the world differently and just to expand our view a little bit. So when sharing the gospel, knowing the different cultures and how they respond and how they picture Jesus, this is obviously really important for missionaries and a lot of schools will talk about this when they talk about missionaries going to Africa or India or Asia. You need to understand their view of the world is completely different than yours. So communal cultures and decision-making processes are no better or worse than ours. They're just different. Difficult to determine when Paul was making a rule to help a relationship or a general rule. I already mentioned that. And wisdom for when the relationships needs to trump the rule. And that's the hard part. Uh, grace and faith to the ancient world to find the relationship. Okay. I'll ask for questions at the end. He asked me to share one last sort of piece of trivia. He likes to end his class with some sort of interesting aspect of scriptures related to Judaism. So this is one that he wanted me to share with you. This is the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years and couldn't be healed by anyone, came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhaging stopped and Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I am aware that power has gone from me. When the woman saw that she was not escaped notice, she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So let me give you a little bit of context about this touching of the cloak or the fringe. So, Jewish rabbis and Jewish men would wear tassels on their clothes. So, Deuteronomy, you make, so make yourselves tassels on the four corners of your garments with which you cover yourselves. Jesus would certainly have had these on his clothes as well. Numbers 15, 37 through 41, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments. With a blue cord on each tassel, you will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the earth. And you can read the rest. Not fast enough to read the rest, but that's okay. Okay, so this is another, this is a messianic passage about a Messiah, about the Messiah. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, Son of Righteousness referring to the Messiah, will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So the same word for corner here on the previous page, put tassels in the corner, is the same word as used for wings here. Healings in its wings, healings in the corners. You could say that. So, then they begged, here's another example. Then they begged him that they might just touch the edge of his clothes Everyone who touched him was cured. So saying the healing comes from the edges of his clothes. So by touching him, he's recognizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic passage. And that's why it was a statement of faith. So that was his point with that. Okay. So she was making a statement of faith. Any questions, comments? I know I generally talk fast. I'm okay with that. Any thoughts on or questions on... Honor, shame, guilt, innocence. Don't know much about fear, power. I don't think fear and power is trying to... Again, from this framework, 
fear and power is pretty much going away. Because those are more of the, you know, African animal, you know, everything has a spirit, spirits are around us, you know, go to the, the witch doctor to get a talisman to protect you from the spirits. That's not what's infiltrating American society. So other cultures, sure. And again, that, you know, so honor, shame cultures generally hold hospitality really high. In other words, if someone comes to my house, I need to be hospitable or it's shameful. So they tend to be very hospitable. And I knew friends who went to the Middle East as soldiers, and they said the Muslims they met were incredibly hospitable and very nice and very, that doesn't mean there weren't terrorists also trying to kill them. But the general culture was one of hospitality, which I think was related to the honor shame. It's shameful if I'm not hospitable. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean there aren't problems and abuses, like honor killings, right? You have someone who kills their sister because they married a Christian. And I don't think they feel guilt about that. I think they feel like they brought shame on the family and I'm trying to restore the honor of the family. That's clearly an example that I don't think is right. And I'm not saying that's right. But recognize that they probably don't feel guilty about that because they, it, it's all framed in terms of shame and honor. And they brought shame and I need to restore the honor. What's that? Saul, before he became Paul, became Paul. That's right. And he even says, I was blamed. I don't think he felt guilt when he was killing Christians. He thought he was right. He was doing what was right. He even says he was blameless later on in some of the letters. So the main point for today is what? I hate when Phil teaches because it just seems weird. No, that's not the main point. Main point is New Testament was an honor. Say again. Cultures are different, and that's okay. And recognize this was an honor-shame culture. This was not a guilt-innocence culture. So that may have implications on how we interpret things. Why did this happen? That doesn't mean it's right, but this might explain why something happened. Okay? Or, or they... Yes? And how, did that influence what he talked about? That's right. That's a great question, because Paul, clearly, he was a Roman citizen. He had, again, even though Rome was honor, shame, but it was definitely more guilt, innocence, because of the Greek roots there. So it was still more honor, shame than ours is today. But you're right, he had his foot in both worlds, based on his background and his, you know, his Jewish, as well as being a Roman citizen and living in Tarsus, which was a Roman city. Okay, well, that's all I've got for you. I appreciate your attention. Alan will be back next week. Come with hard questions. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.